okay, you're doing better, but that's not really moving in the direction that God wants you to. He wants you to move straight forward away from it. Repent. And this is not a new word. Now, the problem is we don't like this word. This word makes us squirm. This word makes us feel uncomfortable because we don't want to do this. You know, I, I don't know where John went to seminary, but he didn't do a really good job. Because look at some of these verses here. Verse 7. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Obviously, John never read a church growth book. You should never say that. Can you imagine being out here, and all of a sudden you see the religious hierarchy of the day walk into church? And the first thing we'd say is, you brood of vipers. Why are you here? You hypocrites. Verse 8, get some fruit worthy of repentance. I don't care, verse 9, that you're Abraham's descendants. If he wanted kids, he'd make the stones his kids. Verse 10, there's an axe at your feet ready to chop you down. That's not the way you grow a church. You don't mention sin. You don't mention repenting. But John's first word is repent. I read a great commentary on this, and it's not just John's first word. Listen to this. Repent was the first word of John the Baptist in Matthew 3. Repent was the first word of Jesus' gospel in Matthew 4. Repent was the first word in the preaching ministry of the 12 disciples in Mark 6. Repent was the first word in the preaching instructions Jesus gave to his disciples after his resurrection in Luke 24. Repent was the first word of exhortation in the first Christian sermon by Peter in Acts 2. And repent was the first word in the mouth of the Apostle Paul and his ministry in Acts 26. There's an ongoing theme there, isn't there? Repent. See, so often we proclaim the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is this. It's the good news. It is good news. And the good news is that God loves you. The good news is that he cares for you deeply. He wants to give you a purpose in life. He has prepared for you an eternal home in heaven. That's all good news, and he wants to give you a plan and a purpose in your life. Amen. Good news. But Jesus did not come down and die on the cross to make me happy. He came down and died on the cross because I'm a sinner, and I need to repent. And there's sin in my life that keeps me from having a fellowship and relationship with the Lord. And that sin has to be dealt with. And so therefore, John the Baptist's message, guys, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is here. Repent. Things need to change in your life. Judgment is coming. And before you think once again, this is just John and Paul, this is also Jesus. What did Jesus say? Do not think I came to bring peace to the world, but to bring what? A sword. Jesus said, repent. We've kind of lost this message as a church that sin has to be dealt with, and the truth is difficult. But you see John the Baptist here proclaiming truth of there needs to be fruit in your life. Judgment is coming. Jesus is coming. Are you prepared? Are you ready for this? Now, his honesty also led to his death because John the Baptist was beheaded for calling out sin. But we're still called to speak that truth. Now, you've heard me say this many times before out here. Ephesians 4 says you're supposed to speak the truth in love. I've run into many believers that speak truth, but they don't have love. And I've run into many believers that have love, but they don't have truth. You have to speak the truth in love. And as you go out there in this world and you say those things and you say the repent, kingdom of heaven is at hand, speaking the truth in love, guess what the world's going to think of you? They're not going to want to be around you. They're going to feel uncomfortable with you being there. They're going to think you're weird. But you know what? Elijah was weird. Verse 4. 
excuse me, John was weird. John himself is clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. I don't know how to get around that. That's just weird. Now, he's dressing like Elijah. That's very Elijah-like how he dressed. But this idea of locust and wild honey, what they used to do is they would catch the wild locust, they'd take off the head, take off the legs, dip them in honey, and then bon appetit. They would just eat them. Now, that's a little strange to me. But if you're living out in the wilderness, it's not like he can just run to Walmart real quick and grab a loaf of bread. That's what he has to eat. That's what's out there, wild honey and locust. So what have we learned from John? There's wilderness times. We're supposed to be preaching and proclaiming. We're going to speak the truth, which is going to be difficult. It's going to be straightforward. It's going to be honest. But we're also going to be weird. We're going to be. Do you realize the Bible calls you a peculiar people? The Bible says your citizenship is heaven. It, it is not. We don't relate to this world. Here's the deal. Don't try to be weird. You already are. I mean, just don't try. When you live a Christian life on fire for the Lord, you're already strange. You're not going to dress like the world dresses. You're not going to act like the world acts. You're not going to watch the same programs. You're not going to listen to the same music. You're not going to be the same. You will already be weird to them. You don't even have to try. Now, the next point with that is, it's not that we're not called to relate to the world, but also don't try to not relate. But you can't completely relate. You can't. There's totally different moral standards. You can't completely relate and understand. I mean, I remember years ago, there was this uh, college ministry over in BG I got involved with for a very small time. And I remember talking to the pastor, and he decided what they were going to do starting the next year. They were going to play secular music that they thought was... He came right out and said, these are songs that are wrong, and the praise team is going to play these songs. And then once the kids come in to hear the music, and then he's going to preach on how the songs are bad. And that was his logic. He was trying so hard to relate. So we're going to play the music that's wrong, and then we're going to teach him why the music's wrong. It's like, oh, man... Have you ever seen a, a body of Christ try so hard to relate to the world that all of a sudden it becomes blurred on how weird we really are? Well, this is how we bring the church, this is how we bring the unsaved in. I just read a great quote by Greg Laurie. The Bible does not say that the whole world should go to church, but rather the church should go to the whole world. And that really hit me. You've heard me say many times out here, the way I look at a Sunday morning, it's kind of like a staff meeting. We're going to get together. Ephesians 4.12, we're going to equip the saints for the ministry of the church. We're going to give you God's word to encourage you and uplift you. We're going to offer you times of prayer and altar calls to say, if you've got something to pray about, we want to pray with you. We're going to give you the tools you need. We're going to give you an opportunity of worship and service. We're going to hopefully have this meeting to say, okay, are we ready? Are we growing? Are we learning? Okay, now let's go. Because you're going to run into more non-believers throughout your week than you are in these four walls on a Sunday morning. There is a time to witness and share at church, and we will always make sure the gospel is presented. But you're going to run into the non-believers at work, at school, at Walmart, at the restaurant. That is where your evangelism will be, is we send the church into the world to represent Christ to a dying world. We try so hard sometimes as churches to bring the world into here. I hope they come. But the real impact is going to be you guys and me going out to them and being a light and a witness in all that we say and do. And we're going to be weird. We're going to be really weird. Peculiar people. Our citizenship is in heaven. Are we okay with that? John the Baptist was a pretty confident guy, I think. I envision John the Baptist just like you see him presented in the movies. I think his beard was down to his waist. 
I don't think he worried too much about a haircut. I think he probably carried around a big staff. Wouldn't surprise me if he hit people with the staff to get a point across. I don't know. I just have this envisionment of John the Baptist. I love him. In the wilderness, proclaiming truth, okay being weird, realizing I'm here to represent Christ. Now, is that what makes him the greatest man born of a woman? No, because we have other weird people in the Bible. We have other people that lived in the wilderness. We have other people that said, repent. What makes John the Baptist the greatest man ever born of a woman? Let's find out. Let's go to the book of John, please. Now, you remember a little bit of the background of John. John had a miraculous birth. So his miraculous birth was with Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were past the point of having kids in uh, John chapter 1. They couldn't have kids, so they had this miraculous baby. Now, Elizabeth and Mary were also related, which makes Jesus and John the Baptist and the term cousins. Now, John the Baptist was older than Jesus by a bit. But John came from miraculous birth. John came from that quite that pedigree. And you can read about that in the beginning of the book of Luke. But what makes John so amazing that we can learn from? Well, let's look at the first one here. John 1, verse 19. Let's look at his humbleness. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. First thing you may see that makes John so great is his complete, utter humbleness. His complete, utter humbleness. John was the first pastor of a megachurch. Did you ever realize that? All the land of Judea came out to him. At this time, there is nobody else. Old Testament prophets have been silent for 400 years. It's actually called the silent years between Malachi and the Gospels. John comes on the scene and everybody's coming to him. Now, I've been walking with the Lord for 22 years. Never once in 22 years has somebody came up to me and said, James, I'm confused. Could you be Jesus? Because you're so amazing. Could you be Jesus? No. No, I'm not Jesus. Okay, well then, are you Elijah? Because, man, you're amazing. No. Are you the prophet? Well, who's the prophet? Deuteronomy 18, there is a promise of a prophet coming before that. John was so amazing that people said, I just got to check with you. Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Now, seriously, if someone came up to you sincerely and asked if you were the Messiah, wouldn't you just want to hang on that moment for just a brief? Well, no. I mean, wouldn't you just for one brief moment, they think I'm the Messiah? He goes, no, I'm not. In other translations, excuse me, in other books of the Bible, because I'm not even worthy to unstrap his sandal. Humbleness. Humbleness here. Mega church pastor, humble. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, before you think that's just words, let's find out about John. John 1, verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. John was not in any way whatsoever trying to grow his kingdom or his ministry. He said, hey, my disciples, follow him. My disciples, follow him. You have to understand what a disciple was back in New Testament times. If you were a, a disciple of a teacher, you almost did everything they did. You would follow them around and be every part of their lives. And so for John to say to his disciples, go follow Jesus... 
What does that show? It shows it's not about us. It's not about these four walls. I heard a great quote recently, and I just haven't been able to quit thinking about it, that we should not look at a church based on its seating capacity, but on its sending capacity. Because it's all about sending people out. See, it's not about getting them to come here and let's make this church as big as we can. No, no, no. It's about, I want you to know Christ, and I want you to know Christ personally, and I want you to know Christ deeply. And so, therefore, my job is to introduce you to Jesus. That's what I want to do. It's not about saying, well, no, 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 no. Claim us, because that way we look bigger. No, no, no. Claim Jesus, and I want to point you towards him. John said, it's about Christ. There's the Lamb of God. Follow him. Follow him. And just to prove this, stay in John and go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Verse 26, what happens when you're constantly pointing people to Jesus and you're not pointing them towards yourself? Well, you got people starting to follow Jesus and not you. Look at verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John, they're, they're leaving us and they're following Jesus. What's going on here? Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. This man was so humble and so willing to say, Let my ministry go Because my ministry is to point people towards Jesus. John was not focused on building his kingdom. He was focused on building the kingdom of God through Christ. Saying, my disciples follow Jesus. They're leaving me good. Go. Go closer to Christ. My joy is fulfilled when I see people grow deeper in the Lord. Because it's not about us. That's hard to do. Because we like it when it's about us, right? But can we truly say what matters most are souls being saved and people coming to know Christ? That it's not about these four walls. It's about a dying world that needs to come to know Christ. See, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you know what? There's some people that plant. There's some people that water. But God gives the increase. Because what was happening at the church of Corinth, there was becoming a division. Some people said, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Paul says, forget this. This is dumb. He goes, I plant. Apollos waters. God gives the increase. We're all working at this as one team, one goal for the furtherance of the gospel. There's been times I've had the opportunity to lead somebody to Christ. I may have not have known them very long, but I've had the opportunity to lead them to Christ. Do you know what? There was somebody for years, maybe decades, before I even met this person, that was planting, watering, and praying for that person. They all had a role in it. I just happened to be the one that picked the fruit off the tree. There's been times where I've had the opportunity to water. Someone's planted a seed. I didn't get a chance to pick the fruit off the tree, but we had them for a brief moment to water them, to help them hopefully grow in a walk with the Lord and plant a deeper seed of coming to know Christ. And so they may have been here for one service. They may have been here for weeks, months, years. I never got a chance to see the full harvest, but I know when they were here, we loved them. And that's maybe what our call was. Now that's tough. 
Because what happens is, maybe they go on to a different church, different season of life, and they'll come back and like, oh, Pastor James, I just want to let you know I found this great church and this great pastor and I came to get saved and I'm really involved and active. My first thought is, well, why didn't you do that here for crying out loud, you know? Put a lot of time into you and you go some other place? Because it's not about us. Now, what about planting seeds? You see nothing. We live in a farming community. You know that. You go out. April, May, you're going to put your corn and beans in the ground. You're going to use up a whole lot of diesel fuel. You're going to go over that ground again and again and again. And you're going to get done. You're going to look at that ground and say, there's nothing. There's just a bunch of seeds in the dirt. And that's all I can do. Now I wait for the water. Now I wait for the sun. Now I wait for the nutrients in the soil to take effect. But I put all that work into that field. And there's nothing. Now, in a few weeks, you start to row the corn, and that's exciting or something. But at that moment, there's nothing. And I've come to the conclusion that most of what we do as believers is really just scattering seeds. You don't see the instantaneous results, and sometimes it can be discouraging, and sometimes it can be like, I see nothing. Yeah, but you're planting. Yeah, but there's nothing. No, you don't know that. You don't know that. I, I can remember um, my dad going out with the beans and the corns, and we'd go in and we'd dig up a bean or corn, and like you'd see the little sprout that's doing something under the ground. But we didn't see it above the surface. But that wasn't good enough for dad. We had to go dig up another one, another one, another one. Lost half our harvest, it seems like, because we just kept digging them up, it seemed like. Something was happening below the surface we didn't see. And I'm just going to tell you right now, you have unsafe friends and loved ones that you've planted seeds in for years and you see nothing. Something's happening below the surface, I hope and pray, that you don't know about. Now the question is, can we be like Paul and Apollos and just say, I plant, I water, but God gives the increase? Can we be like John the Baptist that says it's not about us? It's about the Lord, and I just want to point people towards Christ, and I'm just going to be humble and say, Lord, it's all about you, and I'm going to say, you go deeper in the Lord. I want to help you go deeper in Christ. It's not about who gets the glory. It's not about who gets the attention. I'm going to say, you go deeper in Jesus. It's not about how big the church is. No, we're just all about you, Lord. See, that's John. And that's why Jesus said, the greatest man ever born of a woman. Because the only thing John the Baptist cared about was people coming to know Christ. Oh, Lord, give us that heart. Because when I look at my life, oh, I want people to know Jesus. But there's a whole lot of me still in there, isn't there? It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's not about me. It's about the message. And this is what I hear and this is what I learn from John the Baptist. And that's why I say, Lord, that's what we want. As we want to be that as individuals and as a church. To say, Lord, it's all about you. Because, guys, if we just read what's coming, go back to Matthew chapter 3. Repent. Wrath is coming. Verse 7. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Verse 10. There's an axe laid to the root of the trees. He's looking for good fruit. We kind of get lulled to sleep in life, don't we, a little bit? Same old, same old school, work, get up, go home, laundry, dishes. I mean, we love the Lord. There is a heart for us, for Christ. But the cares of this world can just become so strong that we kind of get lulled to sleep a little bit. 
And what I see and I hear by reading this about John the Baptist, I see a focus that we need to have. Do we really believe this? Do we really believe that wrath is coming? Do we really believe that there's an axe ready to take down the trees? Do we really believe that we're supposed to bear fruits worthy of repentance? Do we really believe these things? And what the Lord has really been laying on my heart is this idea of seeking first the kingdom of God. Can you go with me to Matthew 6.33? You already know the verse, but let's look at it together. See, here's the deal. I think there's more. I think there's more for us as individuals, and I think there's more for us as a group of believers that get together on Wednesdays and Sundays. Back in 2014, we kind of introduced this term, disciple. And we talked about how a disciple is something that we do, and it's also something we are. And so we really tried to make a focus of what does it mean to be disciple-makers, we, talked about, we started up the small groups, and we really started talking about this idea of discipling. And I really encourage you, I hope that you're involved in someone's life, discipling them. And I hope that you're allowing someone to be in your life to help disciple you, to go deeper in your walk and relationship with Christ. Okay, last year we talked about this idea of knowing, growing, and sending. Knowing who God is, that's the bottom foundation. Now, growing in your walk and your relationship with Christ, but then now going and doing something about it. Sending. What does that look like? Well, we'll get to that. So now let's put this all together. I am a disciple that I hope is making disciples through the Lord. Matthew 28. Go ye therefore and make disciples. Growing in my walk with the Lord. Knowing who God is. Now sending and doing something. And so now what do we want to do now this year? Look at verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Let's put him first. Well, I, oh, I do. No, 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 no. Let, let's put him first. I mean, let's literally, really put him first. And everything we do and everything we say. This is not a force. This is not a have to. This is a decision you make and I make to say, Lord, I really mean this. I'm not going to suffer for bread. The Bible's promised me that. I'm never going to go without clothing or a house. You, you'll meet my needs. I, don't even, I can let all that go. And I can just seek you. I don't have to worry about my health. Worst thing that happens is I die and I'm already in heaven. Ha, sorry for you. Right? We talked about Wednesday. This last Wednesday we did a Christmas Eve's Eve service just for fun. And we talked about how if Jesus has taken away the fear of death through the cross, what is there left to fear? And the one guy made a point that how as a believer could you say, well, I'm not afraid to die but I'm afraid I'm not going to have enough money in my checkbook. That doesn't even make sense. If you do not fear death, how could you fear anything? I just read this this morning in a devotional, and I want to share this with you, about seeking God first. God's will for you is that when you get up in the morning, you don't drift aimlessly through the day, letting mere circumstances alone dictate what you do, but that you aim at something. Aimlessness is akin to lifelessness. Dead leaves in the backyard may move around more than anything else, more than the dog, more than the children. The wind blows this way, they go this way. The wind blows that way, they go that way. They tumble, they bounce, they skip, they press against a fence, but they have no aim whatsoever. They are full of motion and empty of life. I thought, wow. Isn't that us sometimes? Full of motion but empty of life. My house is full of motion. Our calendar is full of motion. But is it full of life? 
See, you may be busy, I may be busy, and sometimes we equate busyness with depth in our walk and relationship with the Lord. We did a a men's study years ago, and I never forgot one of these points, or talked about um, shallow waters are loud. Shallow waters are loud. And if you've ever seen that, a deep moving body of water is fairly silent in the whole scheme of things. But when you see these bubbling brooks that are very shallow, they're sure loud, but there's no depth to them. And a lot of times our lives are full of activity, full of motion, but are we really spiritually alive? Are we really seeking first the kingdom of God? Because see, look at verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek denotes effort, that you're going to actually go do something. Now, we're not doing something to do something. Please make this clear. And we're not doing something to earn salvation. No. But Lord, since I know you and I love you, I want to seek you deeper. See, God will go as deep with you as you want to go with him. He, he won't make you go deeper. But if you want to, he's there. But seek denotes effort. My boys love to play hide and go seek. They love to. So when they want to play hide and go seek, I always say this. You guys go hide. I'll be the one that counts. So I just sit on the couch and count. I never go seek. And after a while, they kind of go, what are you doing? Still counting. You know, I'm up to 10,922, you know. If I'm not seeking, are we really playing hide-and-go-seek? No, they're really just playing hide. It's a really great, quiet game. <laughs> There's a lot of times in life we talk about going deeper, but we don't. And what are we really seeking? Seek first the kingdom of God. Not seeking me. Not seeking you, not seeking attention, not seeking affirmation, not seeking glory. We're seeking the kingdom of God. And can we truly say that we are willing to be behind the scenes for no glory, no attention for what, just whatever purpose God has called us to do? We seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. See, you have no righteousness on your own. The Bible makes it very clear in Romans 3 that none of us seek after God on our own. God calls us. God desires this deeper relationship with us, and he plants that into us. Are we going to respond to this? And all these things shall be added to you. What are all these things? Well, just back up a few verses. What are all these things? I don't need to worry about food. I don't need to worry about drink. I don't need to worry about clothes. I don't need to worry about a house. I don't need to worry about money. Look at all the verses before that. God says, if you seek me first, you don't have to worry about any of these other things. How much of our life is based on worrying about those things? And getting the attention and credit we deserve when the Lord says, just put me first. So are we willing to do this? See, this is the problem. I've discovered in years past that there's times where I would do this and like, are we willing to do this? Marv, come up for the final song. You know, well, what does it mean to do this? What does it really mean to seek him first and all that we say and all that we do and to seek his righteousness? I can only tell you what it means for me. And so I decided to share this with you, that I, what I'm going to be doing. On the back table back there, there is a, a piece of paper that looks like this. And at the top it says, Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That, no, I'm not being serious, Marv. Sit down. I said, that's what I say. I don't mean it. Because <laughs> each... Each service is spirit-led and unique until the long-haired hippie gets up and screws it up. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Oh, I forgot we record this. Um, 
We're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? What does that look like? I can only tell you what it looks like for me. There's six different topics here, no particular order. Heart for the lost, prayer, God's word, your calling in the Lord, closer relationship with the Lord, and service. And under each one of these topics, there's just numerous scriptures. Some of them may have seven, eight verses. Some of them may have four or five verses. What I'm going to do for the next 40 days, I'm a 40-day guy, which that means if I have something the Lord's really laid on my heart, I try to set aside 40 days for it. You know, I'm not saying that's some biblical mandate. I see that throughout scripture a lot of times is that repetition of 40. I like it. It works for me. No push, no pressure for you. So six weeks here, 42 days. That means when we come back February 7th. So over these next 40 days, we're going to keep teaching through Matthew. We're going to do stuff. But if you want something deeper and you want, you realize there's something more, there's something more. There's something more to you personally. There's something more to you as a family. And there's something more to us as a church. Grab one of these. Take this. Put this in your Bible for your devotions. And as you go through the week, just read through these scriptures. Pray through these scriptures. Meditate on these scriptures. God's word will not return void. It will not. And the Lord wants to go deeper with you. Remember when the disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus. And it says that Jesus indicated that he would have gone farther with them. He wanted to go farther. He'll only go as far as you want to go. But he wants to go farther with you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the Bible also says that he was preaching to them on the road to Emmaus. They said, did not our heart burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? This is just scripture. And as you go through this, a heart for the lost, you're going to read verses that talk about God's heart for the lost. And I hope and pray that as we read through this, like, Lord, that's the heart I want. That's the heart I want. Or calling in the Lord. So often people come up to me and say, James, I want to go deeper. I want something more. But I don't know what the Lord's calling me to do. Hey, let's go through these passages about knowing what your calling is and all the different gifts of the Spirit. Let's pray through this. And let's spend a week on each one of these topics so that way when we come back, okay, Lord, I have been prayed up. I'm ready to go. See, so often it's like, okay, Lord, I'm going to go. I hear this message. I'm pumped up. I'm ready. I'm going to go home and do what? The exact same thing I always do. If we do the exact same thing, how can we expect different results? So let's take 40 days. Let's set aside our time. Let's pray through these scriptures on a weekly basis. Let's look through this. And each week, pick a different topic and go through it. And then I'm willing to bet that after you get done with these 40 days, we come back and beginning of February, we're going to say, okay, I know what the Lord's called me to do as an individual. Hey, let's hear it. What's the vision for that? Hey, I know what the Lord's calling us to do as a church. Hey, let's hear it. Because it's not about us. It's not about these four walls. It's about a dying world that needs to know Christ. You know, there's a lot of things we've been praying about. We're hoping here this winter to have baptism service, you know, out here at church. We've talked about trying to do a marriage retreat, either going or having one here. Uh, we got a, maybe like a one-day evangelism thing where you can come out and kind of learn out how to share your faith. We have a lot of ideas. But we want them to be of the Lord. Remember, the purpose of us getting together is to equip the saints. That's what we're here to do. There may be non-believers here, and we'll always make the gospel message completely clear. But it's just like we just read that quote. The Bible does not say the whole world should go to church, but rather the church should go to the whole world. As we meet on Sundays and Wednesdays, let's encourage one another. Let's equip one another. Let's edify one another. And then let's go out and do something about it. And if you say, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how to do it. Hey, can we take 40 days together to pray and see what the answer is? And then let's do that. And then I think when we come together and we really seek the Lord over this, for the next six weeks, we're going to stop and say, okay, Lord, I know what you're calling me to do now, and I'm going to go do it. Then let's encourage one another to do this. Because I look at John the Baptist, 
and I see a guy, the greatest man ever born of a woman. Why? Because he pointed people towards Jesus. He didn't care about his own glory, his own ministry. He just wanted people to come to know Christ. Now, there's one catch to this. Can you go with me to Matthew 11, please? Matthew 11, verse 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But there's part B. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Do you know who's in the kingdom of heaven? You and I. So even though John the Baptist is the greatest man born of a woman, Jesus is saying, but guess what? If you know me and you're part of the kingdom of heaven, you have something that John never had. See, John is an Old Testament guy living in the New Testament. And I mentioned this earlier, I believe. There was that 400 years of silence. So John comes on the scene. He's really Old Testament. He just happens to be in the New Testament. But what Jesus is saying, for as great as John is, you have something even better because you can have a personal relationship with me. You can have the Holy Spirit living inside of you to lead you, guide you, empower you. You can know me personally as Lord, Savior, as friend, as brother. Isn't that amazing? We know this. We know that this relationship we have, wow, now's the time to really say, what are we going to do with this? So why don't we do stuff? Like I said earlier, life is busy. I think we want to, we desire to, but the cares of this world choke us out. We have to make a decision what's important to us. It's not a have to, it's a want to. I think there's a fear, a fear of change, a fear of doing something different, a fear of what if it fails, What if it doesn't go good? You know, this last Wednesday, I mentioned earlier in the message, we did um, Christmas Eve's Eve service. It was December 23rd, and we just kind of said, let's just do something different. I shared a little bit with you on that Wednesday. You know, let's not go through Chronicles. Let's just stop. And so it was this idea that we had, and we've been kind of praying about it for about a month or so. And what does it look like? So Tony's good. She took care of everything with the children's ministry. She had all the cookies and stuff around for them. So that left Rich and I to figure out what we're going to do for the actual service. One thing I've learned in the years that Rich and I have worked together is we shouldn't plan anything. We just shouldn't. We need one woman to tell us what to do. And then things just go a little bit better. So Rich and I, some of you heard the story, Rich and I spent a lot of time talking and praying. And we decided our big step was to put the tables in the shape of a U. We were thrilled with ourselves. We thought that was the greatest thing since Christ came on the earth, as we made the tables in the shape of a U. Now, what are we going to do? So, we needed something to eat, right? They said, we're going to have some just snacks and relax. I said, just go buy Hydrox, generic cookies. I think they taste good. Richard said, we can't do that. Richard calls me, true story, Richard calls me Wednesday morning, 10 a.m. in the morning. He goes, I was just up at Ron's, and do you know that they make pre-made cookie dough? He goes, I'm just going to go up and buy a bunch, and I'm just going to start making cookies. Richard was going to start making cookies Wednesday morning and just make cookies all day. Sound like a good idea, right? This, I'm going to buy Hydrox. He's going to make cookies. It's going to be the best party ever. Thank the Lord, Jason calls us. Jason Phillips, who runs CBC, he goes, hey, I heard we're doing something tonight. What's the plan? Here's the plan. He goes, what are you guys doing for food? I said, Jason, I have no idea. Um, Jason goes, let us. Let us take care of this. He goes, Christmas deserves something better than generic cookies. That's exactly what Jason said. 
So Jason and JC went out and they and they did this all and they got the cookies and stuff. Richard and I are setting up the tables and I have this brief moment of, Rich, I want Christmas lights. Let's have Christmas lights, Rich. Well, where are you going to put them? I don't know. So this is what we do. We stand out here and we say, where are we going to put the Christmas lights? Rich had an idea, so I put the Christmas lights up and I'm all excited. Tables are in the shape of a U. Looks cool. We have one strand of Christmas lights. Jason and Jason are getting cookies. And then fear. We've never done this before. This is totally different. We're sheep. We cannot change anything. I mean, seriously, the greatest job security for a pastor is to never change one thing. We're changing everything completely up. And I had this brief moment of, oh, no one's going to come. They're going to come and dislike it. You know what I mean? Just all these other thoughts. The Lord got a hold of me. And this is what I thought he said. Isaiah says that God's word never returns void. He goes, James, if you present God's word, it won't return void. And how can you go wrong with singing Christmas carols that talk about the birth of Jesus and how he died on the cross for our sins? If you do those two things, you give people God's word and you give them opportunity to worship the Lord, how can any service ever go bad? That's the simplicity of what I'm trying to say. It's just how can it go wrong if you just give people God's word and an opportunity to worship and come to know Jesus personally? We complicate things so much. So as you're spending these next 40 days, I hope, in prayer, keep it simple. It's the word of God. It's knowing who Jesus is and proclaiming him to a dying world. And then let's just do that. And I appreciate it. If you feel led to do this for the next 40 days, take one of those sheets, pray about it. And I hope that you come back after those six weeks and you say, James, I know what the Lord has called on my life. Because you wouldn't believe how many times people come up to me and say, I want something deeper, but I don't know what that is. Hey, let's spend some few weeks praying about it. Maybe somebody will come up and say, hey, here's this vision for this thing we can do at church that's really going to be an outreach to the law. It's really going to help marriages. It's really going to be a witness. Then let's do it. Because it's all about him. What can we learn? We can learn from John the Baptist, the greatest man ever born of a woman, that if we just point people towards Jesus and not worry about ourselves and make sure people know who Christ is, then we're doing the best thing we could ever imagine. And if I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, according to that, all these things shall be added unto you. I don't need to worry about food, drink, clothes, house, money, none of it, because I'm seeking first the kingdom of God. And when all that comes together, all of a sudden it's like, Lord, I get it. I get it. There's a whole other level of knowing you deeper. And I don't have to walk in this fear, worry, anxiety of what if or this. No, my world is so simple. Whoever I run into, Lord, open a door for me to share the Lord with them. If you choose, Lord, help me to represent Christ. And that's what it's all about. As you go to work, as you go to school, as you go to Walmart, as you go to the restaurant, just represent Christ in what you do and say. And all of a sudden, I get it. So if you're desiring something more as an individual or something more in your family, and I hope and pray you would also desire that for us as a group of believers, Take one of those sheets, pray that for the next 40 days, and let's see what the Lord does here. Because we're really going to give it to Him, because we want those things. We want to be people that have a heart for the lost, and service, and God's Word, and prayer, and to know Christ deeper. That's our goal. And that's our goal here for this year. Because do we truly believe what John said? Wrath is coming? Is there an axe at the foot of the tree? If it is, then we want to be ready for that. He mentioned fruit. John mentioned fruit twice. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that everybody bears fruit, some good fruit, some bad fruit. He said in John 15 that God is glorified when we bear good fruit. What is good fruit? 
Well, Galatians 5 says, Good fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Okay, that sounds great on paper, but what does it look like? Well, let's spend the next 40 days asking the Lord, what does it look like for me as an individual, for my family, and for us as a church? And I guarantee you, if you give that heart to the Lord and you seek Him first, just like we said in Matthew 6, you're going to see a whole other level and depth to your walk with Christ. And it's going to be an amazing thing. There's going to be wilderness times. There's going to be difficulties. But it's going to be amazing as we truly start to say, Lord, I get it. It's all about you. So now, Marv, would you please come forward for the final song? Actually, not yet. Um, I'm just going to... I'm going to be back there uh, to shake your hands. But maybe the Lord's already stirring something in your heart. Grab me. Grab Brene. Let's pray if you got something you want to family and does for us as a church to really represent him and always.